Welcome to this episode on the Health and Happiness Show, where it's my mission to change your mindset so that you can live a healthy and happier life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Let's go. Welcome to this episode on the Health and Happiness Show, where it's my mission to change your mindset so that you can live a healthy and happier life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Let's go. Hey guys, Solly here and welcome back to another episode on the Health and Happiness Show where today I'm joined by an incredibly special guest. After witnessing and experiencing his parents' divorce at the young age of just six years old, growing up in poverty and being bullied at school led him to developing non-purge bulimia and at the age of 14 years old, he was diagnosed with type 2 bipolar disorder as well as being morbidly obese. At a low point in his life, the pain and suffering didn't end there. He grew up with zero self-esteem, zero confidence and believed that he was the victim and that all men wanted to hurt him and all women considered him to be lacking. This belief led to sabotaging his first marriage and became one of the men who wanted to hurt him, turning to self-harm, drugs, and attempted suicide. Fast forward to 2007, and he began to take care of his physical health, successfully losing an incredible 126 pounds, and discovering his passion for helping others achieve the same thing through uh, physical transformation and so that they can make a mental one too. Today, he is a mindset coach. He is Mr. Mindset, which he compares mindset coaching to be that for the mind, that personal training is for the body with his clients, overcoming everything from anxiety to stress to confidence to eating disorders. The work and mission that this man is on is truly inspiring, which is why I just had to invite him on the show today. It is therefore a great pleasure and excitement that I welcome to the show, Dave Cottrell. Dave, how are you? I mean, after an intro, intro like that, I mean, can you send me that? Like, so I, like, <laughs> I, I can never put it like in such a short and snappy way. I was, I'm so glad you've done it because anytime anyone asks me to do the intro, I'm like, right, we've got 25 minutes for this podcast. Right. Well, there's 20 minutes gone. Um, I'm great, mate. And thank you so much for such a, a flattering and detailed intro. Mate, my pleasure. I'm almost, I don't know where to start. And that's going to be my starting point. Where do people get started when it comes to changing the mindset? Okay. Well, I, if I roll everything I do into one model, which is dead hard to do because I do a lot of different stuff, but I like to start with what I call the three A's, which is awareness, alternatives, and accountability. So we start with awareness and that is ultimately like, well, it's ultimately understanding what you want to do, where you want to get to, what you're currently doing, whether or not that helps you get there or not, and whether or not that takes you further away from it. So behavior-wise, you know, some behaviors take us towards our goal or seem to only to take us further away from the goal in the long term. Other behaviors feel like they're not taking us anywhere, but end up actually being the ones that actually pay off in the long term. And often we're not aware around that. We're not, we, we sort of kind of know where we're going and we kind of, and those, those destinations have been written by kind of societal or parental expectations in our lives. So we kind of know that we're doing, we're on that track, whether it's the career track or the education track. I mean, obviously all those tracks are kind of like thrown up in the air right now, but I would say the place to start with anything is awareness. So like, I met, let me ask you a question. What do you want out of me for this, this interview? <laughs> I want to tap into the mindset from a man who's overcome so much. You know, when I was doing my background on you, I was blown away, to be quite honest. Obviously, you know, as I've said previously, I know, you know, I know who you are. I knew you through Ben, through the BTN Academy and whatnot. And I've always followed your work since, but I never really dived deep into your actual story. So I want to dive deep into how essentially we overcome so much adversity in our life because I think um, to paint a picture of a life which is going to be rosy and perfect is bullshit, basically. Um, And actually to go into life with the expectation that it's going to be a little bit hard and it's going to be a little bit challenging. So I want to learn about how we gain that strength, how we turn those negatives into positives and actually start to give people direction in their life because I think people are lost. I think they're lost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think speaking to my own experience and to the experience of a lot of clients that come to me at that kind of pivotal moment, rock bottoms are very, is a very kind of prominent place in a lot of people's stories. It certainly was in mine. You know, you've mentioned in the intro that I tried to take my own life. That was, um, that was actually in 
was it 2009 I think that was in um and there was a whole period for me there that I hit full on rock bottom to the point at which I'd isolated myself entirely from my family and friends. I got into a terrible relationship, which had contributed towards that because this person kind of wanted me to themselves and didn't want, didn't like it when I went and spent time with my family or friends. And I was very much, as, as you said in the intro, super low self-esteem, so would do anything to please this person. So, you know, basically didn't question it. Um, and ended up in a kind of period of like absolute isolation. And I mean, I have two, I have two kids myself and they were actually, they were, um, they were two and four at the time. And the thing is when you hit that sort of low point of self-esteem, low point of self-worth, it was so easy for me to believe that my kids would be better off without me. Like people often hear my story and say, how on earth could you, you know, how selfish, how on earth could you possibly think about taking your own life when you've got two small children? And the thing is that often we start from a position of a distorted mindset, a mindset that is that, you know, we talk about things in, in terms of negative and positive, but it's not, it's distorted. It's like, it's a mindset that tells you lies, what you believe those lies. So I believed wholeheartedly that, yeah, actually my kids did deserve better, but the way I, the way I interpreted that was, well, I should get out of the way and make room for them to be better. And um, it was only watching this film. This, this was a film that actually really turned things around for me. It's a film called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. And it's, um, it's a French film. It's a true story about a guy with ALS, uh, locked-in syndrome. And he's basically there. He managed to write a book through, uh, through blinking with a nurse. And they, might, they wrote, made a series of kind of like blinks that she would, the nurse would go and actually create words from all this. And he wrote a book and the book got turned into this film. And there's a scene where he's um, he's on the beach with the kids. He's kind of in the wheelchair with all the machines and stuff attached to him. And his kids are playing and all he can do is watch. And um, there's a line, and hopefully I'll get through this without crying. Normally if I say that first, I don't cry when I say it. Uh, the line says, um, I realize that even a fragment, even a shadow, even a sliver of a dad is still a dad. And at that point, this is after I'd tried to take my own life. And I was still feeling like I wanted to. And, and, I, and I sat there watching that film because it was because you know at the time Netflix sent you a few DVDs a week or whatever you could you didn't have everything on demand so that was the one that had come through and I, that was the only reason I was sat there watching that and um, just to kind of pass the time and I watched that and it just hit me and like it hit me to the very core and there was a, I remember the point at which like my brain just switched and says my kids do deserve better but rather than wanting to move out the way and make space for better I came up with the idea that I could be that man uh, I could be the better dad that they deserve. And that became, that became my focal point. And if, again, people think, well, that should have been your focal point all along. But it's like anyone who thinks that has never been to that position. They've never been to that rock bottom. And unfortunately, that's where, as you say, where do we start? That's where I meet a lot of people. Because in, if anything in life, we treat kind of, we often treat self-care or self-development as a painkiller. We, you know, we, we take it when the pain's already there we take it when when there's already symptoms and we need to start shifting people to looking at self-care as being a multivitamin something you take in case you know so this is my insurance policy because um, i remember having a chat a few a few months back well it was probably about six months back now time has lost all meaning these last few weeks <laughs> but i was having a chat to someone a few months back and they said you know what i got back into football like a few years after i got back from university and it really helped with my mental health and he said he said to me he realized after that, that his dad had always never left the hometown and he'd always just carried on playing football with the same group of lads that he went to school with. And in his dad's generation, that was their self-care, but it was, it was never, no one ever said, right, lads, we're going to go and play footy and that's going to be our self-care. It was just there. The same as those people that you meet that have always been fit. The same uh, people who you meet that have always had good mental health, always had a positive mindset. It's probably because they've been doing the things proactively that most of us find reactively when things get hard. And um, for me, it was just like, right, the physical health I'd already started working on before that. And that kind of came back into play. The physical health came first. Um, 
and then the mental health the, the big change that I learned there was a I learned mindfulness and this is a this is something I'm huge and then you and I talked just before we came on about how we both like podcasts and we both like YouTube because the content's a little bit evergreen mindfulness is evergreen right it's like people want something new they want a new answer for mental health but I was taught something by someone that is thousands of years old you know mindfulness is is literally thousands of years old and i'm trying to think of what there was a there was a statement this too shall pass was the statement she taught me um and i traced that back to the first time it was it's been recorded in english which was like 1867 it's like you don't need something from 2026 to find an answer you know there are things there and but if you look at my journey my journey was a lot of different pieces from a lot of different places i did a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy I did a bit of talking therapy. I opened up and talked to my mates. I got my relationships back there. There were some bridges that were fully burned. I've never been repaired since then, but there were other ones I've repaired. There were same same situation with my family, same situation with my fitness. Now, and I think the difference was, whereas a lot of people go through that period and they think, well, this is only making me like 1% better. Like I'd kind of got into the mindset of like, I'm going to do this for my kids no matter what. So instead of kind of at the end of the day going, oh, well, I only feel a tiny bit better today. I was just constantly forward thinking at that point. Um, and there was a good few years where it was like, right, I am full on into self-development. My self-help books, instead of like being shelf-help books and just sitting there gathering <laughs> dust, I read them. I read some really weird ones. Um, <laughs> like, and um, and I, just, I just delved into all of that. But I suppose for me, that started with that awareness of you know, what I'm like, the awareness going back to the three A's, the awareness was what am I doing? And what I was doing at the time was I was numbing myself with food, I was numbing myself with alcohol. I was the people I was spending time with. I was having those, I was, they were all taking drugs. So I didn't, I burned bridges with friends that weren't taking drugs. So I felt like my only connections could be there. And it was just a case of, right, well, what am I doing all of these things for? I didn't think about it in these terms, but this is if I could go back and speak to myself, how I would speak to myself now. It's like, right, what are you doing with the food? Well, the food is it gives me comfort. Okay, how long does it give you comfort for? If we're honest, 10 seconds. It's like, and then I, and then I have all the discomfort from before and then all the discomfort from afterwards layered on top of it. So it's actually causing me, you know, like I said before, some of the behaviors we do take us forward only to take us back. It's something I call a boomerang. And I started basically knowing that doing more of the more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff, basically. And um, that sounds overly simplified, and it was a lot more complicated than that to do it. But that's that's it in 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 a nutshell, I suppose. So, do you believe awareness? Everyone has awareness because I would believe that awareness is the key that unlocks the door to change. And it's one of those where, in that dark place we're aware of how we're feeling, but we're not necessarily aware of the change that needs to happen. Or are we aware of that change? Is it more denial in that dark place of what we actually need to do? Or what do you think? Yeah. So I think a lot of people are aware of how they're feeling. Um, I don't think people are truly aware of what's making them feel that way. And I think, you know what, there's like, there's a continuum between, is this my mental health or is this the things I am doing? And people like to sit on Twitter and argue and it's like, you know, people, obviously it's, there's a big, huge them and us. There's the, um, there's the progress coaches that have never experienced poor mental health themselves, or even worse, the ones that have and have overcome it. <laughs> I went a bit cocky for a little bit if I'm perfectly honest, because I had a three and a half year period where my mental health didn't dip, or at least it didn't feel like it dipped once. And I was like, yes, I've completed it. I've finished mental health. I'm sorted. Um, but the reality is that if you believe that it's 100% fixable by our daily actions, then you get cocky and then you get arrogant and then you get, and then, then you also get knocked for, knocked for six on a day where everything you do, you feel crap despite everything you do. But also if you believe that it's 100%, it happens to me. Mental, it is my mental health and that's just the way I am. And I have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. So there's, a, there's, at least a, there's at least a percentage of that. Who knows what percentage? But then if you go the other way, you can become extremely defeatist. Now, people often, people often again, when if someone thinks it's all, it's all what's happening to them, that person is not likely to take accountability for the things that they personally do themselves. And those things will be contributing towards it. You know, like I was staying in bed far too much. I was 
not pursuing anything that for, that worked on my own personal growth. That's one of the few things in work in this world that we all actually crave. You know, we're, we're all different on so many levels, but we all crave growth on some level or other, whether that is a 1% cost of living pay rise in, in April or whether that is getting 10 more followers on YouTube or whether that is you know losing a few more kilos on the scales or whatever it might be we all we all crave some sort of form of personal growth and um, I when you start pursuing that you can tell yeah we totally need times where we don't pursue it but when you start pursuing those type of things you kind of start to think well what's wrong with me? Why can't I do this? Like, I feel so kind of listless. And I compare it to pressure and tires, you know, it's like too much pressure in a tire and it pops too little and it goes flat and you can't use it. Same thing with people, too much pressure to asking a person that's not asking a person that's more towards that. I can't handle any of this. Asking that, putting too much pressure on that person to change. And that person is going to just shy away and maybe even have a breakdown and probably blame you about it on Twitter. Um, if, but at the same time, too little pressure for that person, and that can be external pressure or internal pressure, too little expectation for that person can lead that person to go, why bother even trying? And then that whole thing leads to them being flat and listless. And it's, um, I think, again, people don't have, people often don't have awareness over what they are doing um, and what, not so much what they're doing, the why behind what they're doing. So if someone takes drugs, for example, the why often that society places on them is, well, they're an addict or they're, they're you know, they're just, they're, they're lazy. You know, people who smoke weed, it's like quite often it's like, well, they're just lazy. They're just bums. They're, they're just druggies. They put all these labels on the person. And the, you know what I always start with is the positive intent. So there's one of the principles of NLP, which is every action is backed up by a positive intent. And that is positive to the person that's doing it. This doesn't necessarily mean like we all have to agree on the same positive. But like even horrendous things like bullying, it's usually backed up by a positive intent. It's usually backed up by the fact that the bully themselves feels out of control or is being abused somewhere else or, you know, just feels weak, feels insignificant. And the only way that person can feel significant, if even for a moment, is to make someone else feel worse. You know, the same with alcohol. People do it to escape or people do it you know, to escape the feelings that they're feeling in their head. And they escape those feelings for a little while, but then they have, the next day they have a hangover and now the feelings are there and they're intensified by the fact that you automatically feel miserable. You know, people who think that they've got no money, how many people who say that they're skint go and buy things on their credit card just so they can feel like for a short space of time that they've got some money, that credit card bill's coming back and it's coming back with interest. And that's the whole thing is that these behaviors we don't do them because we're weak. We don't do them because there's anything wrong with us. We do them because they give us instant gratification. And if we can figure out specifically what that instant gratification is, then we can start to look for alternatives. So if that person is trying to make more connections in life, and but, they're, but all they're ever doing is connecting with the people that's easy to connect with, but bring them no value. So like, you know, it might be easy to connect with your friends that are like got no ambition in life and just sit at home, play an Xbox all day. I feel like I'm talking about myself now. Um, <laughs> I have ambition in life and would also play Xbox all day. If, um, if I could do both at the same time, that'd be brilliant. But, um, you know, let's say that you've got that friend who just basically sits around smoking weed and playing Xbox all day. I don't do the, the smoking weed part, um, not anymore anyway. <laughs> and, um, and basically, if you that that's the people that you can, it's easy to connect with because they're they're there and they're always doing that. Whereas it might be harder to kind of, you know, make some new friends or network with some new people that are a little bit more aligned to where you are in the moment that you're in in your life right now. Though this. Um, so that's like one thing, you know, if someone, if someone's needs more energy, that person's more likely to reach for coffee and monster and things like that, that give them the illusion of energy for a short space of time than they are to, you know, instead get to bed earlier, eat a little bit better. And it's like, so that's the whole thing is we find what itch you're trying to scratch. And then we say, right, well, how else can we now scratch that itch? And that's the, that's the second day that's alternatives. Yeah, like I think there's there's so much value in that. Um, I mean, today, 2020, you know, the 21st century itself is an instant gratification-based world that we live in. Um, I mean, my Amazon delivery came this morning, which I ordered <laughs> yesterday, and I was pretty yep. impressed by that. Um, so yeah, I can see the problem and the problem that it's growing. Um, I want to go back a little bit to when you were a child again, because 
would you would it be fair in saying that was the root to many of the problems that arise um it's possible like i think um i often relate it back to you know when you said in the intro about my theory about how kind of men were with me and how women were with me it's like when we are we do get those those thoughts imprinted on us when we're very very young it's something i see a lot in my clients it's like if a client even says they struggle with their weight i'll be like well you know if i ask them when was the first time someone made you feel insignificant because of your weight and they'll be able to talk back to some time when they were like 10 or 11 or something and it'll be like a parent or a teacher. And it's like, and then you, if you forget, take the weight part out of it, and you say, Is that, did that person ever make you feel insignificant before that? And they'd be like, oh yeah, my dad did this when I was six or whatever. And um, the way I, I always see it is I remember, it's one of those things like, do I remember it because I remember it or because I've told the story so many times now, but it was my earliest memory growing up was, um, there's a few things actually just around about the same time. One was me mum and dad getting divorced. The other one, I'm just going to mention this because I've just thought about it off the top of my head now, it relates to health anxiety, is I tripped over on the playground and got a scratch on my eye on the same day that my nan was taking me for an eye appointment and I got glasses for the first time. And for years, I believed that I got glasses because I'd fallen over. Um, there's an, I mean, that, but that's a prime example of how the human mind can connect one thing, especially at that age. Uh, now, when that happened, what when my mum and dad got divorced, the, I can I remember coming down the stairs in a little house in Anfield that we were in, and my mum was stood at one end of the lounge, my dad was sat in the bay window with my brother hugging and crying, and um, I rem- like my mum, my mum said I was like, what's wrong? And my mum said, your dad and I are getting a divorce, and you know the innocent six-year-old I was, I said, what's the divorce? And basically he said, like, you know, my mum said, oh, it means your dad's not going to be living here anymore. And whereas my brother had clearly gravitated towards my dad, I gravitated towards my mum. And there was a very kind of fine line in the sand drawn that day. And, you know, me and my brother didn't get on at all growing up. And we still don't. (laughs) We got on for a little bit in the middle. Um, But... um, but like him and my dad were like all, were almost inseparable and there was a very clear team there and me and my mum were inseparable as well and there was a very clear team there but after my dad left and my mum was kind of forced to keep a roof over her head my mum started her own business um and my nan was what who was looking after me so my mum basically was working every hour god sends and and that's the whole thing is that me but my mum would treat me my mum would treat me like i could do no wrong and i never had to be honest i didn't my mum i remember when i kind of when i cheated on my first wife and then ended up start and then ended up starting taking drugs and everything when i was 24 my mum was like I never thought I'd have to worry about you because I'd never, I'd not put a foot out of place in my life until that point, really. I'd just been this kind of shy, shy, shy is not the right word because um, I'd overcompensate. So I wasn't, I never appeared shy. Um, I'd be this guy that was just kind of, I don't know, like, oh, I was such a rule. I played it by the rules. I was always kind of like, I was always dependable and all this stuff. And, you know, I think um, through that time, my mum treated me like this, this because my mum treated me like this absolute god almost like that I could do no wrong I expected that from I expected that from other women and then so no matter how well an, a woman treated me um, I got rejected by every girl I asked out until the, my first wife and then I got married for the reason my, my reason behind getting married was you know I did love her but at the same time the big driver that I actually that pushed me to get married at the age of 20 um, was the fact that I genuinely believed that no one else would ever love me. And that was kind of where my self-esteem was. But thing was, because my mum had shown me this unconditional love, I expected that same level of unconditional love from my wife. And I turned into this weird person that tested that, you know, like was, I was convinced. I was convinced she didn't love me. So I'd, you know, set up little tests and stuff to kind of prove that she didn't love me. And none of them worked because she was, she was like, even, even actually after in the end, I kind of, I, I went and cheated on her. She still, she still wanted me back. And I still couldn't accept the fact that she still loved me at that point because I didn't love myself. You know, it's like, how can, it's that's this whole thing with self-esteem. You can never have it from, you can't have self-esteem if you don't love yourself, if you don't accept yourself. So, and um, that was one of the other things that took me to that rock bottom. Because again, I'd never put, in a, I'd never put a foot out of line until that point in my life. I'd never hurt anyone. My mum and dad got divorced because my dad cheated. And I was like, I would never do that to a woman. And, you know, it's like to this day, it's one of those things that I still find it very, very difficult to forgive myself for. I only do because I know 
that torturing myself about it forever is actually more likely to lead me to do it again than actually forgiving myself for it and realizing that I was I wasn't I'm not that person anymore and I'm never going to do that again. But it was um, that was kind of imprinted on me. My mum and because my dad didn't want anything to do with me, I craved like male attention like you wouldn't believe. And I don't know if I ever mentioned this on the, the the episode with Ben that you'll have heard, but like Ben was one of those people when I was an adult that I really that's why you know I gravitated towards him and kind of and hired him as my mentor like when I first started in the fitness industry. Um, and he would, to me, was this, like, he was this kind of guy who'd been, whose podcast I've been listening to and I adored. And when he told me, well done, it was honestly like, it was like when I scratched my dog behind his ear and his back leg starts going, you know, it's like, that was what those well dones were like for me. And it was again, because because of the no self-esteem thing you know because because my dad had never told me well done it's all i ever wants to hear from him I, I, he never told me he's proud of me i don't remember him ever telling me he loved me like i don't remember any of that he died when i was 19 and i, I had i had two years where he him and my brother weren't speaking and he actually acknowledged we're well, not acknowledged but you know he spent time with me he did acknowledge the fact that he had another son before that um apart from the fact that him and my brother did like to pretend i was invisible from time to time and that's uh that's one of the big key moments that when I've been through mindset coaching myself as the client, um, that moment led like that moment when we unpicked that moment, that was where I finally found my self-esteem because I realized that I'd been trying to him and my brother when I was, I think I was, oh, he was still at home. So it must've been before the divorce and before I was six, but it took me, it took me therapy to kind of get back to this memory. Um, and they pretend I was invisible. And the louder I got, the more they'd be like, can you hear something and all the rest of this? Now, as a kid, that probably lasted 10 minutes, but we all know how time dilates as a kid. So a six-week summer holiday lasted for infinity when you were a kid. So 10 minutes as a kid is like 10 hours as an adult. And um, when when I actually did the got delved into all of that myself, and we went back and we dealt with how at that moment it was imprinted on me, this idea that I was invisible that was the moment at which i unlocked my self-esteem it was the october october three years ago this year um i actually you know remember it, it was with my one of my other mentors a guy called chris racy um who i wish did social media content because i could do with a daily dose of him but he's he's like about a million years old <laughs> he's actually he's actually about 80 <laughs> which isn't a million for any 80 year olds that are watching but he's um he's he's, he's like no don't do that modern stuff i'll just do this and um when he unpicked that and we replaced that belief um, with the fact that we, we replaced that belief with the fact that I am enough. Um, it, you know, that, that was the moment at which I actually finally realized the person whose approval I've been wanting all these years was my own. And I gave it to myself and I, I continued to give it to myself for like two and a half years. And then it kind of started fading again earlier this year. And I, and I, and I picked up on it and I'm like, I need to top that up a little bit, you know, like looking after your, your own self-esteem. It's not, you get it given to you once and then you're done. It's like, you know, you need to look after it. It's like, a, it's like a muscle. You need to train it. So how do we know when we're enough? Um, if anyone who hasn't seen it, head to this man's website. There is a motivational poem on there and it is incredible. It will resonate. It will speak to your heart and uh, it will certainly lead you on that journey to knowing that you are enough. For the listeners today, how can we know that, right? Like, and with intent as well, how can we know that we're actually enough? Mm. Okay. So there's, I'd say it's, it's like, you've got to think of it like a bank balance, really. For, the, for your entire life, you've been telling yourself that you're not enough. That's taken out of the bank balance and you might be in debt. Turning around and, t- and saying, see, it's looking in the mirror and going, I'm enough, I'm enough, I'm enough, I'm enough. It might get you ready for the day, um, but it's probably not going to get you all the way. You've got to tell yourself it regularly. But what I say is, first of all, you, you, your idea of whether you're enough or not, mine was based on what I thought I needed to be in order to get my dad's attention. And what, and I, cause I couldn't get my dad's attention by being visible and loud. I turned into this, you know, 26, 23 stone, massive guy with big blonde curly hair, dyed blonde curly hair, can I add? It wasn't natural. Um, who wore bright colors and big t-shirts that said fat people are harder to kidnap and basically got on stage, played a guitar and essentially might as well have had a big giant arrow of his head saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. 
and I need like I was trying people will go one of two directions if they feel they're not good enough they'll either do everything they can to prove they are and turn into a perfectionist or they'll think that everything they do is not going to quite cut it and they'll turn into a procrastinator that's like procrastination and perfectionism are two sides to the same coin they seem like the most opposite people in the world but it comes from the same root and um, with that it's first of all acknowledge the fact that that came from first of all it came from someone else giving that belief to you and, and the vast majority of the time they didn't intend to they weren't being you know my dad was just playing a game him and him and my brother had their own little club and they could get a reaction out of me he wasn't my dad never thought i wasn't good enough like you know he never told me he loved me but he also never told me you know he also never told me he didn't you know he never told me he hated me he never told like he never told me i'm not good enough he never told me anything like that he just did things that i i heard that from even though it wasn't being said and that's the thing as kids well as adults we hear things that aren't being said you know like i've got this 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 example i like to use for this is like if i say to my wife oh you look really good today she might hear i don't look good every other day you know, it's like, no, I'm just complimenting you on how you look right now. I really like you in this dress. Are you saying you don't like me in other dresses? It's <sighs> not what I said. You know, it's like saying black lives matter and hearing white lives don't. It's not being said. <laughs> it's like, so we hear things that aren't there. And especially as kids, we really do. And, you know, first of all, knowing that that, that belief is not a belief you've chosen for yourself. It's just a belief that you inferred as a kid based on someone else's expectations of you or what you thought their expectations of you were. If your mum said your room's always messy and what she wanted was a tidy house, you might think that you weren't good enough in her eyes because your room was messy. You know, it can be, it can be off innocuous things like that. Um, and that's important to kind of point out because not everyone who thinks that they're not enough um, come, has has such an obvious trauma to point to and people there are people out there that have way more obvious traumas to point to than mine you know it's like so it's, it's a scale but we can all get we can all take it from anywhere in the scale and as a result as you're as an adult it's now time to turn around and say right well what does it take to be enough now the first time you ask yourself that question what you're going to think of is you're going to think of what you need to be to be good enough in everyone else's eyes and if you've got like four or five people in this world that you know that you're that you're important to or that important to you like i could sit around and go what does it take for me to be enough i've got two kids that both want different things except for they both want to play minecraft dungeons now which i'm totally on board with um but they both want different things from me as a dad you know one of them wants conversation around around about marvel films and the deeper meanings of life and um, whereas the other one wants to watch steven universe with me and draw on the computer it's like you know you'd think there was more than two years between them like but, but then so like now for me i could say right well in order to be a good enough dad i need to be able, i need to do both of those things and then but it's like well what do i need to do to be a good enough son or a good enough friend if i've got 10 friends if i'm lucky enough to have 10 friends what do i need to do to be good enough for any, each one of them it's like no forget all of that what do i need to be a good enough husband no what do you need to be to be good enough in your own eyes for you what are those standards because those standards as i say have been in, have been picked up on and postulated on for the ent your entire life and they've never really been set in stone they've been set in your subconscious but they've not been set in you know your conscious mind and if you struggle with that question which most people do <laughs> so don't beat yourself up if you do but ask yourself the following question one of those pick one and any one of those people that's important to you you know whether it's like a, a partner a, a parent a child a best friend and ask yourself what do they need to be to do who do they need to be to be good enough in your eyes and I'm going to say that nine times out of 10, you might reach for an answer and say, well, they just need to kind of like be there when I need them or whatever. But majority of the time you'll say they are, they're just good enough the way they are. And there's a little bit of a hint hidden in there. You were good enough just the way you are. You are, you know, you, all of those things that you thought you needed to be when you were growing up were all things that we'd almost kind of guessed at. Yes, there will be, there will be people listening that'll have outright had people say to them, if you're not doing this, you're not enough or whatever. That actually does happen. Um, and at the same time, even then, it's like, well, you don't have to abide by those rules anymore. You're the adult now. What what do you need to be? Because this is the difference between the perfect, like the, you know, the when I work with perfectionists, what we um what we do is we like I like to ask two questions. I like to say the first one I ask is um, at the end of the day, you've done nine things out of ten on your to-do list. 
um, are you happy about the nine things or are you beating yourself up about the one that you've, the one you've not done? And they'll look, pretty much every single perfectionist in the world will say, I'm beating myself up about the one I've not done. The follow-up question, which goes about 50-50 in the answer, I'll say, if you did all 10, would you be happy or would you think I could have done 11? Oh, you're an 11 person, aren't you? <laughs> I love body language. Um, <laughs> We're doing this on video, people. I'm not just, <laughs> I, can, I can actually see Ollie right now. Um, and that's, got that's yeah, well, I've, it's not my first rodeo. <laughs> and that's the whole thing is like, what, if I'm working with a perfectionist there, it's the same as working with someone who doesn't feel like they're good enough. It's like, right, what you want to do is you want to sit down and say, well, what does, for me to go to the bed at the end of the day and, and, and know that I've, I've been enough today. Like, what is, what does that look like? And it doesn't look like what you can achieve on your absolute best day, by the way, because if we do that, if we set the bar all the way up there, it goes back to this pressure thing. You know, we're going to burst sooner or later. And again, we'll come in on a day where we've done 99% of everything and, and still feel we've fallen short of that. You want to set that bar somewhere where it's reasonable, where it's achievable and where it actually does motivate you. What do you, how do you teach your children about mental health? Obviously they're entering ages um, where they're going to be quite exposed, I'd imagine, to a lot of comparison, a lot of uh, vulnerability. And how do you monitor that as the parent? How do you oversee that? And if at all, what are you teaching them to deal with that? Okay, cool. Really good question. Um, So, I, I like to always be honest on this question because I, I, I teach mental health in schools as well. Um, and I'm so much better at teaching other school kids than I'm teaching my own kids. But that, I think that comes down to, I have to, um, none of the, none of the kids in school know where my buttons are to press and whereas my two do. <laughs> and that's the whole thing is like, um, yeah, that's, that's, it's just, so I have to, so I, I often take the things that I've learned from teaching other kids and go, right, what am I not doing as well at home? And, and I think this is, this is kind of useful for a lot of parents um, out there is because we've got so much more patience with other people's kids than we have with our own, because when we deal with our own, we're not dealing with the conversation that we're in there. We're dealing with the conversation plus the baggage of the years of being that person's parent or, you know, having our buttons pressed by them in the past. Um, and it's, um, that's one thing that I think if I'm, I am honest, I'm, I'm working on improving these days because I have this endless amount of patience with kids in school that, um, that I don't seem to have with my own. And I think that's one of the biggies is like, is, is being patient. But I, I, what I do is I, I remind my kids on a regular basis that they are enough. Um, I actually tell them that outright. Um, the You Are Enough poem was written for them. It was never supposed to be a piece of content. Um, I wrote it because I was watching a Gary Vee video that said, whilst washing the dishes, because, you know, multitasking. Um, and I, I, he said, basically, what would, you know, what would you say if you, were gonna, if you thought you were going to die tomorrow? And I was like, and I literally stopped midway through washing the dishes. And my wife was like, what, what's going on? And I just disappeared. And um like people hate it when I say this because especially people who love that video, I'm like, I wrote it in probably less time than it takes to say it. I wrote it in one shot in one go, just typed and then, and then stopped. And, um, and then I stopped and I read it and I burst out crying because I was like, that's everything I needed to hear. And, and, um, it still makes me cry. Like goosebumps. Almost, I've got goosebumps. almost like every time it makes me cry. And um, I brought my wife up, read it to her through, like, through, through actual tears. <laughs> um, and she was just like, if you needed to hear that and the kids need to hear that, other people need to hear that. And um, I was like, yeah, you're right. And the original video of it is just me. She, she was doing a bodybuilding show in Birmingham the next day, I think, like um, at Body Power. And then the, the original video of it is I just, before I went into a seminar that I was doing that day, I read it in the car. And, and, and like there's a, there's a video of it at that point. And um, I kind of titled it what I would say if I would die tomorrow. And because of my history, I'm like, probably shouldn't have titled it that. Um, but like, I got like messages of people saying, is everything all right? You're not like suicidal again and everything. I'm like, actually, no, I just, I wrote a really motivational thing and I wanted to share it. But yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like four years old now or something. It's still like this is going back to that whole thing about new. It doesn't need to be new. It's, I love it. I, I, it's one of my, that's one of my proudest moments, that piece of work. 
Um, and that's like the lessons in that are that. Now, the big thing is, um, and again, I'm guilty of this sometimes, and I've definitely used to be guilty of it more, is when, is when my kids tell me what's happening in their lives because I grew up with, like, I grew up in quite a traumatic situation. I grew up being bullied. I grew up, you know, um, with an eating disorder and all of that stuff. When, if one of my kids historically was like, I'm being bullied, and I'd be like, okay, what's happening? And he'd say, oh, well, you know, some kid on the bus was flicking the back of my ears. Um, and I was like, okay, how long did that go on for in the other bus ride? And I'm like, is there anything else I can feel the rest of the day? And they're like, no. And like my brain at that point, like this is before I was a coach, was all like, that isn't bullying. Like that's not, and I, and I literally think remember saying that to him. I'm like, that's not bullying. This is what happened. And it's like, no, that's just like, it's like the worst thing you can do because you invalidate what, the, what they're experiencing. And what they're experiencing is very, very real to them. It's all relative, you know, to, to them, what's going on. Um, so instead, like I basically try and treat my kids to the best of my ability, like I would a client, which is a listen, I empathize, I, you know, I, I say, you know, that, that sounds really horrible. Do you want to tell me more about that? Um, or ask them, how does that make you feel? I encourage them regularly to open up about their mental health. I remind them like explicitly that they can talk to me about anything whenever they want you know they can always talk to me about anything and i remind them of that because i thought my mum was devastated when she found out that i've been struggling with my mental health for 10 years i've been 10 years i've been struggling with it before she before before i actually had my full-on meltdown and because i'd covered it so well um she didn't have a clue and that was that was she was almost as traumatized by by um by the fact that I felt I couldn't open up to her because she'd never, she'd never outright said that. So I'm like, right, I'm going to outright say that to my kids. Cause I don't want to get to a position in 10 years time, especially not doing the job I do and be like, I didn't see it in my own household. So I try and treat them like I would a client. Um, and I try and, and it, well, that's the weird one. I try and treat them in the way I communicate in the same way that I would a client, obviously they don't get the exact same treatments as a client because they get hugs and things like that. And my clients don't unless they really, <laughs> unless they really want them. Um, but, um, I try not to hug my clients. I hug people at seminars though. It's weird actually. I don't hug my one-to-one -one clients, but I hug people at seminars. That's odd. Never thought about that until now. Um, and that's it. Like really is, to, is, is those things remind them like everything that I see. Um, I actually know I was about to say everything I see is a pitfall that my clients have um, experienced and stuff and everything I've learned about my childhood and their childhood I try and make sure my kids don't experience that and that's actually that would have been a lie if I said that I sometimes leave things in their way and I don't mean physically like just you know throw a banana skin in their way while they're walking through the kitchen or anything I, I like I can if I perceive a problem that's there for them I don't get rid of it um unless I know it's like, obviously it's super dangerous, I do, but because ultimately um, there's a great expression that I learned from the Richard Wiseman podcast. And if you have, uh, not Richard Wiseman, Richard Nichols, they both look the same and they're both psychologists, um, <laughs> but R Richard Nichols podcast. And he said, basically, your job is to prepare the road, sorry, no, prepare your children for the road, not prepare the road for your children. And that really stuck with me because that's what I do for my clients. Like I like to help my clients, but I got into the business. There's a video on my YouTube call. It's not just about losing weight. It was one of the um, earlier ones I made. And it basically says in that I wanted to help other people achieve the same things I did without the same roadblocks. And as much as that was all based on the most positive intent ever in my first year as being a PT, about a year later, I realized, no, actually, I want them to experience some of the roadblocks. I just want them to have someone that will go through those roadblocks with them. And that's, that's the different thing is like, I want my kids to experience the roadblocks and I want them to try and overcome those roadblocks themselves. Uh, because, you know, that is the way that I enable them to be ready for the road rather than making the road ready for them. I really respect that answer because, well, as a non-parent, um, I, I can't judge, but I just think, you know, I, I very much feel like you're speaking to me as well. Like, do you know what I mean? And um, just it, it expands my awareness listening to, to what you have to say. So I, I, think that, I think that's so valuable. And I know for a fact there will be a number of parents listening to this. So thank you for sharing that with them. Um, Dave, tell me about a life a day. Okay, so A Life A Day was meant to be a one-year project. <laughs> um, a Life A Day started in 2018 um, on January the 1st, and it was an aim to help one person a day. 
for the year on average. So I didn't, I didn't, I never thought I'd actually do one on January the 1st you know, at all. And then I literally, while I'm sat there with a hangover, um, actually I wasn't hungover by that point because it was dinner time. I'm sat there at dinner time and I got a message of someone who heard, heard me on, um, on I think Ben's podcast as well. Um, I know it wasn't because I hadn't been on Ben's podcast by that point. So it must've been somewhere else. They'd heard me somewhere else. Um, and basically they um, messaged me saying, that they were suicidal and I just thought well I can't just leave that so I ended up so I was like give me your phone number um, and I ended up on the phone so I'm still um, good mates with the guy today he's, a, he's an absolute legend um, he does let me share his story but I'm not, I'm not I won't go into t- I, don't, I, I always feel weird even because one of the big rules of a life a day is I'm not doing it just to share stories uh, but he's like outright giving me permission especially as being the first one where he was suicidal um, we had a conversation that night. We kind of, you know, re like kind of redirected where his thoughts were going and stuff. And and I'd been sat there that day. The reason I bring his his story up is because I've been sat there that day thinking, who the hell am I to do this project? You know, I, that imposter syndrome was kicking in. I hadn't actually announced it because I was just going to kind of make it a sort of background thing that I did. You know, I'd be like, oh, can I help you out with that? I'd offer someone in the gym a free PT session or whatever. Um. And then I actually came off that call and I was like, well, if I ever needed a bigger sign that I need to do this, um, then this is it. So I started it off with random acts of kindness for about a month. And that ended up being really hard to manage because you, you, there's only so many people you can just randomly buy a coffee for and all the rest of it before you start feeling a bit cliched and, and people are like, why are you buying so much coffee? And you also realize your skin. <laughs> so... So I was like, well, what can I do? Because then people were like, well, what is it? I don't understand it. So in February and then 2018, I turned into the idea of one hour of my day would be each day, an average of an hour a day each day would be dedicated to a call for free. Um, and each one, one of each of 365 people over the course of the year would get a call. Um, and in the middle of November, I finished it the first year. And um there was funny, like listening to like my friends on the build up to that saying, well, what are you going to do when it's over? I bet you'll still carry on. I'm like, yeah, well, I bet you'll do more of them. And I'm like, no, I've got to stop it at 365. I did 367. Shh, don't let it get out. Um, <laughs> and, and then they were like, and I, I was like, yeah, it's just a one year project. It's just kind of just as a bit of a social experiment. We'll see how it goes. And, um, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And by the middle of the year, I was getting, I was getting an equal number of requests, but also questions about what on earth I was doing this for to the point I had to put rules in it. And so the three rules are all to make sure I behave myself. Rule number one is that you're not going to be sold anything on that call. So it's not a funnel. It's just not because everyone was like, well, what's the catch? This is a funnel. I'm like, no, it's really not. Couldn't look after all 365 of you ever tried. It's like, I don't want to give away 365 one-to-ones and then run the risk of all 365 of you coming back. <laughs> um, Rule number two, because again, I said about confidentiality, rule number two is completely confidential. Um, and rule number three was I don't hold back. I don't give only the good stuff to my paying clients. So I would do that belief change thing that I said that I went through with my mentor, done that for over a hundred people, like get help them have an instant kickstart to their self-esteem. I've done, I, I, I know how to do that. That is off a specific sort of um, it's not, well, it is script, I suppose, to a degree. It's a very specific process that I was doing it so often I knew it off by heart um, and helping people like overcome all sorts of things with that. And then, um, and then I just loved it. I loved it so much that I carried it on and I thought, you know what, I need to make it bigger in year two. And like everyone was like, oh, how are you going to make it bigger? Like do two lives a day? I'm like, yes, but not how you think. And I was like, I'm going to ask every single person that I do one for to pay it forward, to do something nice for free for somebody else. And that was cool, like over the course of 2019. And again, November was seemed to be the cutoff time when I ran out of 365. Um, and basically people were paying it forward with like, I'd get messages about what's happened and I'd get messages from people who had the thing paid forward to them. It was brilliant. And, and I was like, right, okay, it's 2020, let's make it even bigger. Um, and this year it's called a life a day. It takes a village. So I still do 365 one-to-ones. I will do the thousandth one on September the 29th as it stands. Um, well, it'll still be, I'll be the thousandth day of it. Um, I don't know if it'll be the thousandth one. I need to check the numbers, but I'm still counting that as day 1000 anyway. Um, and 
what I did this year is I encouraged looks. I've helped an absolute ton of coaches on this. A lot of the people in the first two years were people who were trying to pivot the business, trying to find more clients, trying to start a podcast, trying to, and like, and like said, the hour wasn't all to do with self-esteem or weight loss or anything like that. It was to do with like, how can I help you? You know, how can I help you like achieve whatever it is you want to do? Um, and so I called in a few favors with a few of those and I asked them to give away some freebies as well. Um, a lot of the BTN crew have done it. You may have seen a few of them. Chelsea's done that from there. Um, Jesse's done some from there. I'm trying to think of who else. There's uh, Chris Harrison. Um, they, a few of them have, done, have all kind of given away freebies. And that was going amazingly well. And then COVID, um, but I'm still doing the one-to-ones. The, the, it takes a village part we've had to hold back on because we had things like sports therapists and nail technicians and all sorts of people giving away free things that couldn't. And and now I don't want to ask people to give away free things when they've just had 16 weeks of their income being impacted. So we'll see how if that doesn't if that doesn't pick up again this year. I'm still doing the one-to-ones, and as I say, I'll do number 1,000 um, by the end of September. Um, and yeah, it's going to carry on. It's going to carry on next year. I don't think it's getting a new name next year um, because my big project next year is called the Mental Health Marathon. And that's a 26.2 hour constant live stream talking about mental health. So mental health conversations, which I will be hosting all 26.2 hours of. Um, so that's going to be the big thing for next year on the 26th of February. So 26.2. And um, But a life a day is going to be just something that I just keep on going. And my aim really is to keep, is to look after the paid side of the business, um, which is seminars and one-to-ones and things like that. And um, eventually hoping to kind of make a, a, a Twitch channel that actually is able to receive, well, it's able to receive donations and things now. But the idea is to use those sources to continuously be able to do every single year for the rest of my working career, <laughs> 365 one-to-ones a year. Um, and if someone's had one in year one or year two, they can still have one in year three. It's like, it's just one a year per person. So there are a few, there's, um, there's about five or six people that have done one in all three years, which is cool. That was a really long answer. Sorry. <laughs> Mate, like all I can say is respect, respect. <laughs> like, you know, it, it's, it's kind of funny, right? Because, you know, you believe in for such a long time that you weren't enough and yet like everything you're doing is so much and probably more than enough do you know what i mean it's just the 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 mindset that you have the way that you pay it forward you know the generosity the love the kindness it's just so great and the reality is that the world needs more people like you do you know what i mean (laughs) um and i think your story has been so amazing like it's really really touched me today and just seeing that growth hearing that growth um, and watching your growth through, you know, what you're doing in terms of your work is just amazing. I love the concept behind, um, you know, a day of life. And it's something which I'm going to uh, practice myself and make sure that I'm paying it forwards as a way of thanking you for your time on this podcast today. So, mate, respect, like fist <laughs> <Thank> bump. <you. laughs> and um, yeah, so look, before I ask my last question, where can the listeners uh, find out more about you and what you do? Okay, so Mindset by Dave everywhere. Um, I am on pretty much Instagram and Facebook pretty much every day. Uh, there's usually a piece of content that goes up there. They're both slash Mindset by Dave. There's two places that I'd really love people to go to if they're interested in those type of channels. Um, YouTube now, there's no link for that because it's like, you know, one of those really weird YouTube links um, because I've not got a big enough channel to have slash Mindset by Dave. But if you search for Mindset by Dave on YouTube, I'm, what I'm, I'm really putting kind of a lot of my eggs in that basket right now because I want to create content that people can find not just within the 36 hours of it first being posted because I've said the same, I've made some of the same posts about depression over and over again on Instagram and no one ever finds them after they're there for the first day. And then, whereas I'd rather make a video about depression that people can find. And the other place is Twitch that I mentioned before. The reason for that being essentially, I want to, I want to create an online community where people can just come in and do a drop in. The idea is just to do long term, long streams on there on my day off, um, which at the moment is a Tuesday. Um, So the idea is to be in there on a, a Sunday night. And on a Tuesday um, and maybe one other day throughout the week where basically I'm going to be sat there playing video games. There's a group of people that will come in and chat, hopefully. And I basically, I'll play video games unless someone wants to ask a question about mental health and then I'll answer questions about mental health. And that's like how I'm planning to spend my day off ultimately forever. And the idea is to create this community on there. Um, and that's twitch.tv slash mindset by Dave. I love it. 
this isn't my last question, but I have to now ask, what were you playing on Xbox? What's your go-to game? So I'm playing on PC now because I haven't got a capture card for my Xbox yet. Um, and plus the kids never get off the Xbox. Um, but I, I was I've, my go-to game, I don't really have one now. Um, I've been playing, I, was, I played Minecraft Dungeons on Tuesday and absolutely loved it. It was brilliant. I just nothing but downtime and mental health chat. And it was like, which doesn't seem like downtime, but it was like, it's a game that I can actually play and talk at the same time. Whereas if I'm playing like, any first person shooters and stuff as soon as i start talking to the to the chat i'm dead so um i've i've played i played fortnite for the first time on sunday with my with someone from my stream and i hated it so i'm never doing that again um and apparently it's just a really stupid idea to get into fortnite this late in the game and um yeah so i'm playing and i love you know, do you know like do you know what metroidvania games are basically platformers uh, so a, a Metroidvania game basically is like Super Metroid and Castlevania were like the originals, um, which is quite the call that. And a Metroidvania game is basically a platformer where you've got an open world, but you can only get around the open world by learning the abilities as you go through it. So like, you know, you can get to a certain place until you learn double jump and then you can get to a new place. And then until you learn something to get through that barrier or whatever, you open up different parts of the world as you go. And I really enjoy playing games like that um, because they're a little bit less... Um, Games were always the downtime thing for me. And any first-person shooters, I love them. I used to love Call of Duty Black Ops like crazy. Um, but it's not downtime for me. It's too, it's too high adrenaline. It's like I could play those things until four in the morning and not realize the time and then try and sleep. And then in my head, I'm still playing a game in my head. And, you know, that's, that's another prime example of a boomerang, actually, is I think I'm going on there for stress relief and I come off there more stressed than ever. Whereas with a platform game, I tend like like you know Mario was the was some of the originals and stuff, but um, like with that type of game, I, I play it and I enjoy it, and I can have conversation to people who are in the chat, and yeah, it's fun. Love it. Maybe your answer then to my final question, maybe downtime, but what is the one thing that the listeners can do that will have the biggest impact on both their health and happiness? Oh, okay. So it's technically not, it is one thing, but it's not one thing. I would say, right, what, what I call your takeout menu. And your takeout menu is not an actual takeout menu, but your takeout menu is a list of self-care. And the reason I call it your takeout menu is because I want you to treat it like a takeout menu, not a to-do list. A to-do list we look at and we think we've got to do all of it. So if you write a list of self-care and it's got, let's say if you, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm, I'm going to imagine that you ask that question of a lot of people. So people might have heard like that, the, a lot of different answers and they might, so people might have 15 things on this list of what they can do for their self-care. Now, if we look at that, perfectionist point of view and we look at it like it's a to-do list it's like holy crap i've got to have a bath run a like run run a marathon walk the dog uh, meditate have some kale chips <laughs> i've got to do all of these things before i get to be de-stressed and that's enough to make you stressed that's why we don't call it a to-do list so i call i say write your takeout menu and your takeout menu is a list where you write down ideas on what might work for self-care not what you definitely know what might because we're brought up with the idea of curiosity kills the cat so we don't try new things we don't try putting a face mask on especially not as a bloke but by god is that good i love it um I, i'm gonna do one i'm gonna do one today i think uh, i might do one on stream and put me green and then I'll put me green screen on <laughs> and then do one on screen with me green face mask so half my face has disappeared that wouldn't be freaky at all so you write that list and it can have as many items on it as you want because you don't have to do all of them you just treat it like a takeout menu because when you go to a takeout menu you don't go oh my god i've got to eat everything on this list before i've had my dinner you go no i want the chicken tikka masala i want a naan bread and i want some poppadoms and that's what i'm going to have and now i really want naan bread and poppadoms and a cheeky well not a chicken tikka masala i want a king prawn path here to be honest so you pick a few things that you want and you go with that and that's what your self-care menu wants to be like because yeah there's a million ideas out there for self-care and what often stops us from trying them is the thing is the idea that we've got to do all of them it's like no just try it maybe compute like maybe gaming like people might still look at me and go you're a 38 year old man you shouldn't be playing games well there was a quote i shared from can't remember who it was now it's so like again an, an older quote from a guy who's about he was, a, he was about the 70s when he wrote it um and it was another quote from the 1800s which was we don't grow old because we stop no we don't stop playing because we grow old we grow old because we stop playing and that's when i i stopped playing computer games for years and years and years and 
I forgot just how much downtime they actually give me. So that wouldn't have been on my list five years ago, but now it's like that's on my list. And more importantly, I know which type of games work like that for me because I know that, you know, Call of Duty doesn't. Call of Duty is just going to get me angry, get me frustrated. The same as actually, even though we've just won the league, I don't know if it's ever come up, but Liverpool just won the league. Um, <laughs> the same as being a Liverpool fan for like the last 30 years. It's like watching a Liverpool match, especially, you know, even now actually, after the, even the ones of the last since we've really won, it's like, it's just one of the most bad for your mental health things in the world because, well, it's not, I shouldn't say that, otherwise Liverpool fans will just disappear by the, in the droves. But it works you up. Like, I, yeah, even thinking about it now works me up a little bit. Watching football is not, is not good for me. I have to be, I'm a Liverpool fan via Twitter these days, which means I watch the match by looking at the, the updates on Twitter rather than watching the match. It's much better for me, although it's a little bit more boring. <laughs> No, I love it. I really, 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 really love the concept of a takeout menu. Um, I mean, I usually order everything on the takeout menu, but I will try and do just one thing. Dave, it has been the biggest pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. And guys, until next time, stay healthy, be happy, take care. Thank you so much for listening to another episode on the Health and Happiness Show. It is truly my pleasure to deliver these episodes in my pursuit to helping you live a healthy and happier life. And to get started on that journey, my encouragement to you is to go to my website, www.oliejarrett.com and avail of the free seven-day mindset course. This is a seven-day mini course which is going to allow you to get embarked onto a journey of mind mastery, taking control and regaining control of the mindset, including the thoughts, the feelings and emotions that you get this is completely free there's no catch this is my way of giving back to you after you gave me so much uh, during my battle with cancer so just go to ollijarrett.com and uh, you'll find it on my page but guys until next time stay healthy and be happy take care